Today on the Matt Wall Show, a school in New York encourages its white students to be white traders and white abolitionists. We'll talk about how this is only one of the ways in which our culture instills self-loathing in people, especially children. And in our five headlines, the media starts to update its reporting on the, on the death of Officer Brian Sicknick. The update is that their original reporting was absolute bunk. Also, Bill Gates tells us plebes that we're going to have to stop eating meat. So says him. And for our daily cancellation, we'll discuss the story of the father who sent out a few bad tweets and then ended up with Child Protective Services showing up at his house because of it. All of that and much more today on The Matt Wall Show. First, I want to tell you something about our friends over at LifeLock. Look, there's, there's nothing more important right now than making sure that you protect your online data. That's especially the case right now. There's a text message scam uh, claiming to give away a free year of Netflix that's going around right now. If you receive a text message like this, uh, don't respond. Don't click the link. It's one of those things that seems too good to be true. It is too, it is too good to be true. Uh, it's a scammer trying to get you to log into a fake website to steal your information and your credit card. It's why it's so important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. Every day we put our information at risk on the internet. In an instant, a cybercriminal can harm what's yours, your finances, your credit, your reputation. That's why it's so great that there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats. Uh, so many different things, like for example, if your social security number is for sale on the dark web. Many, many things that you, you won't be able to detect on your own. You can check your credit score. You can uh, hopefully keep track of your bank account information, your credit card statements and all of that, but there's a lot more to protecting your identity that you're not going to be able to do, and that's why you need LifeLock. If they detect that your information has potentially been compromised, they're going to send you an alert and they're going to take care of it. It is, it is, it is unfortunately very easy for a bad guy to steal your information, and that's why you just need LifeLock. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours, yours, with LifeLock Identity Theft Protection. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com slash Walsh. That's LifeLock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. Well, maybe you've noticed I've made it a habit to base monologues around the reporting of Chris Ruffo, who's the uh, City Journal writer, um, does a, a lot of reporting on critical race theory and other things. But the reason why I base a lot of my monologues around him is that he's doing some of the most important reporting in media for my money. Um, granted, the most important reporting in media is kind of like talking about the, the cleanest highway rest stop bathrooms in New Jersey, kind of a low bar. But in this case, it really is important. So here's his latest. Um, he says, quote, the principal of uh, East Side Community School in New York sent white parents this, quote, tool for action, which tells them that they must become white traders and then advocates for full white abolition. This is the new language of public education. Okay, white abolition, white traders. The Federalist uh, also has an article about this. They have more information. They say that the graphic also appears to have been produced and dispersed by the Slow Factory Foundation, a progressive climate and race action group in June of last year, shortly after the death of George Floyd. The organization which claims it is devoted to dismantling colonial systems of oppression and promoting systemic change towards regenerative social and environmental systems also often advocates for equity-centered education focused on creating and delivering resources about power structures and historical social context as a key driver of any topic. So this is, a, in, in, this is a group that is now giving material to schools that the schools then is then sending to parents and using in their classrooms, presumably. Uh, continue, some of the group's initiatives include their study hall conference series devoted to 
using fashion as a medium for social and environmental change. Um, and they're sponsored by many big name donors, including Adidas, Tesla, YouTube, um, TED, uh, other, other things as well. So this is a far left organization and this is what they're putting out. And now this school is using it. As for the graphic itself, it says, this is what they're telling the parents. There is a regime of whiteness and there are action oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. It's about time we build an ethno ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about and governing others. All right. um, if that makes sense, which, which it doesn't. But then there's kind of the illustration to maybe help us make a little bit more sense of it. We're given sort of a dial which goes from red to green showing us the different white identities. All of the white identities are negative. Okay, so they're all framed in a negative way. And you wouldn't really want to be any of them. But if you're white, then you have to be one of them, at least according to the people promoting this stuff. And if you have to be one, then you need to be in the green, is what we're being told. So here are the white identities. Let me, uh, let me read them to you. Let me pull them up. The white identities. We'll go from red to green. So from, uh, from bad to worse. Or rather, from, from worse to, to not as bad, but still bad. Okay. Um, number one, white supremacist. Clearly marked white society that preserves names and values white superiority. White voyeurism. Wouldn't challenge a white supremacist. Desires non-whiteness because it's interesting, pleasurable. Seeks to control the consumption and appropriation of non-whiteness. Fascination with culture. Example, consuming black culture without the burden of blackness. Okay, so... Uh, I guess, for example, a white person who listens to rap music is a white voyeur. All right. Uh, white privilege, that's the third identity, may critique supremacy, but a deep investment in questions of fairness, equality, uh, under the normalization of whiteness and the white rule. Sworn goal of diversity. Okay, so this is, this is actually most white liberals. They're not even in the green yet. They're, they're just, above, according to, to, to this, they are only slightly above white supremacist. These are the white people that are going around talking about diversity and all this kind of stuff. Um, and apparently that is, that, that's for coming from a place of privilege. Uh, number four, white benefit. Sympathetic to a set of issues, but only privately. Won't speak slash act in solidarity publicly because benefiting through whiteness in public. Then there's white confessional. This is another white identity. You could be a white confessional if you want. Um, what that means is that there's uh, some exposure of whiteness taking place, but as a way of being accountable to POC after, seeking validation from POC, people of color. White critical. Take, so that now we're getting, um, let's see, let's look at the dial again. All right, white privilege, you're basically, so you, th th most liberals, most white liberals are back in the white privilege. They're, they're, they're kind of orangish, but they're still sort of in the red. Um, now we're getting to white critical. Now we're getting into the green. So now we're getting closer to where the, uh, the, the race hustlers want you to be. White critical. Take on board critiques of whiteness and invest in exposing slash marking the white regime. Refuses to be complicit with the regime. Whiteness speaking back to whiteness. Then seven, white traitor. Now we're really getting there. Um, actively refuses complicity. Names what's going on. Intention is to subvert while authority, white authority, and tell the truth at whatever cost. Uh, need them to dismantle institutions. And then finally, this is where they want everyone to be, 
if you're white, a white abolitionist. This is number eight. This is where you're firmly in the green. And a white abolitionist is changing institutions, dismantling whiteness, and not allowing whiteness to reassert itself. All right. This is, of course, racist in the extreme. Uh, there's probably no reason to belabor that point. Those who know it's racist don't need it explained to them. Those who don't recognize it as racist immediately are hopeless anyway, or at least they're going to require a much longer explanation and a much longer argument than I can provide here. So instead of talking about the fact that this is absurdly racist, which it obviously is, and that this is a form of, of racism that is widespread, indeed systemic, in our culture, instead of talking about that, I'd like to pull back and take a kind of panoramic view of the situation, if I could. Because this is just one way that self-loathing is instilled in the population, especially in children. Yeah, this, was, this was given to parents, of course, uh, because this is the message that they're sending to everybody. But only imagine what the kids in school, if the parents are being told this, only imagine what the kids, whenever they end up back in school, are going to be told. Um, and this is only one of the ways. It's not the only way that self-loathing is instilled. And it, it, it's, it's not like you escape the self-loathing by being another race, because that, that, that's not going to happen either. Boys of all races are told that they're toxic, that they're infected with toxic masculinity, that their masculinity is yet another thing that has to be purged and deconstructed and destroyed. So uh, think about already, now, now imagine a, a white boy being sub sub subjected to this kind of thing in school. They're, they're just toxic down the line, toxic whiteness, toxic masculinity. Everything about them, they're told, has to be deconstructed. They should hate everything about themselves. And for girls, um, it's, it's the same, though it's not quite as explicit. Now, with boys in our culture, they are explicitly told to hate themselves. Girls, not quite as explicit, but they're still the same kind of message. A girl who finds, quote, traditional femininity appealing, who dreams more of being a mother and a wife than, say, a businesswoman, is told to reject that, to hate it. Boys and girls together are taught to be suspicious of their parents, their families, their history. Uh, they're taught to hate their country. They're taught to hate everyone who came before them, all of those ignorant bigots who made them and raised them. And it's not like the message to non-white people and non-white kids is positive either. Because they're taught that they're victims and that they will never not be victims, that they need to be rescued, that they're helpless. And there's a lot of self-loathing that comes with that as well. So just th think about this. Think about what we're doing. See, we thought that the problem was the opposite, right? This is the way that we've talked about it for so long. We thought that uh, self-love and, and self-esteem were being overemphasized, and they are. But the self-love that kids are conditioned into is very specific and very shallow and weird and backwards. So they're taught to uh, embrace their vices, their sins. They're taught to define themselves by their sexual proclivities. They're taught to reject their biological sex and invent some new kind of gender for themselves. But underneath all of that, underneath all of that, when you get down to the bottom of it all, we are not turning kids into overconfident narcissists, not at all. We may be turning them into narcissists in a certain way, because anyone who's, who's focused intensely on themselves and can't see outside of their own interests, can't think about anything other than themselves, uh, that's a narcissist. 
But just because you're thinking about yourself and you're focused intensely on yourself doesn't mean it's in a positive way. We may be turning kids into narcissists in a certain way, but self-loathing ones. Self-loathing narcissists. We live in a culture of self-loathing narcissists. We're raising generations of self-loathing narcissists. Because that's the message that's being sent at the deepest level, right? Hate yourself. Hate who you really are. Reject it all. If you're a white boy going to school and and, uh, totally exposed to modern culture, especially if you don't have a a family, if you don't have parents, they're going to insulate you to some extent from that, then forget about it. It's nothing but self-loathing all the way down the line. But it's not just white boys. It's everyone to some extent. Hate who you really are. Reject it. Be something else. Be someone else. Be who we want you to be, who we think you should be, not who you actually are. And then we wonder. We wonder why our kids are depressed and suicidal. Well, it's no mystery. It really isn't. Let's get to our five headlines. I think many of us still think that uh, there are some problems you might experience, like hair loss, that can't be solved. And if that's happening to you, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's not the case. Uh, you know, 80 million men and women in, this U- in the U.S. experience thinning hair, yet it's still not openly talked about, which can make going through it feel scary and stressful. And that adds to the problem. Uh, millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It's, it's common. It's normal. But uh, again, it's not something that we're talking about, and it makes it a lot harder. And it also means that people might not find out about something like Nutrafol. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow hair as strong as you are, and it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. On top of thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may also get you, uh, help you get a handle on better sleep, stress response, skin, nails, libido. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands does it work? Yes. In clinical studies, Nutrafol uses, users saw thicker, stronger hair growth with less shedding in three to six months. Um, whether you're experiencing thinning or not, you deserve hair as strong as you are. Nutrafol can help you achieve your best hair growth naturally, and you've got to try this out. You can grow thicker, stronger hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and use promo code Walsh to get 20% off your first subscription. That's their best offer available anywhere. You can get that right now, plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, code Walsh. That's their best offer anywhere. Again, 20% off, Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Walsh, for hair as strong as you are. Before we really get into the headlines here, this is one that I I didn't have planned. I didn't have written on my my sheet of headlines because uh, I just saw it right before we went on the air. Rush Limbaugh has died at the age of 70 from, uh, from lung cancer. It feels sudden somehow. It somehow it still feels sudden, even though we, we knew for months now that he'd been diagnosed and he'd, and he'd, and he'd talked about it openly. Um, still, in some way, uh, to me anyway, it feels sudden. And I guess that's the way it goes when you have a man uh, of such consequence, a, a true legend and pioneer and icon who dies, someone who is really, in every sense, irreplaceable, when they die and leave behind a, a hole that, that cannot really be, be filled. Uh, he, he was a man of consequence. And no matter how you feel about his politics, 
you, you should be able to respect that at least. I know that's not the way it goes now in our culture. You know, we don't, we don't admire and respect great men and women, but we should, even if you disagree with them. Um, to be a, a true original, which he was, in a world of copycats, and he spawned a whole generation of copycats. You know, um, wh- one other thing I want to say here is that, uh, obviously, the, you've got these vile ghouls online who are already celebrating his death and dancing on his grave and all of that. And we, we, we knew that was going to happen. Um, but I, what, I, what I really wish we wouldn't do as conservatives, and especially conservative media, is amplify that. Because, you know, the trolls, the reason that they're doing that is because they want attention. So let's not give them that attention. That's what I would rather do. I'm not going to sit here and read, oh, you're not going to believe what this uh, Twitter user said about Rush Limbaugh. I'm not going to do that. Because that's what they want. That's what they would want me to do. It's what they want all of us to do. You know, the other thing about Rush Limbaugh that, I, that, I, that I've been thinking about even before uh, this news is that he faced his own mortality and his own death with courage and dignity. Another thing you should be able to respect regardless of politics. And he talked about it openly. And he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, especially his, one of his last shows right before Christmas, and he was, uh, and he was talking about it. It was clear that he, was, he wasn't trying to delude himself into thinking that, you know, everything is going to be okay. He knew the end was coming. He just don't know exactly when, but he knew it was coming. And he faced that with courage and dignity. And that's, again, not something that you can say about everybody. And I suspect that a lot of the trolls who are dancing on his grave and having a good laugh, when their time comes, they will not face it with the same courage and dignity that, uh, that Rush Limbaugh faces. Something to think about. Before you, if you're considering celebrating anybody's death or laughing about it like it's a joke, you know, we're all mortal. We're all going to join Rush Limbaugh and every other, all the other billions of people who have died. Sooner rather than later, we'll all join them. We, we, we all live short lives. We're mortal. And that's the lot that we have been given as mortal beings. So maybe, maybe, maybe hold off on the laughter a little bit because your, your, your turn is coming. All of us, it is. Uh, but... Just another thing to admire about Rush Limbaugh, that he was able to do that. Um, and he's, uh, again, a legend, icon. Um, there'll be a lot of time to sort of talk about and parse out and analyze his, his influence, which was immense and in a lot of ways incalculable. But for now, what I'll say is rest in peace to Rush Limbaugh and uh, prayers, prayers for his family. You know, I have to say I'm a little bit of a, a hypocrite because I have been criticizing, you know, the Nashville city government here for, for being completely unprepared for their lack of winter weather preparedness as we go into like day three and I haven't seen a plow touch any road. Um, but I, I, we're, we're not much better. You know, it, it, I guess I, I discovered I, we also were not prepared. And that's why yesterday I took my kids out to go sledding at the park and um, we didn't have any sleds. We had no sleds for them. And so we had to take the uh, lids from, you know, the big plastic storage bins that you, you put stuff in. So we took the, the lids from big plastic storage bins, and that's what they were sledding on, plastic lids, down at the park. So that's all we had. We all had for them. We really, and we couldn't get to Walmart to get them new ones. And even if we did, they'd probably all be out anyway. But then we go down to the park, and of course, you know, of course, a bunch of other kids there, and all the kids have the fanciest sleds you've ever seen in your life. Bunch of, so, you know, nobody around here has a shovel or salt for their sidewalk, but they do have $70 sleds. 
And I had a lot of, I have to say, I, had a, I was experiencing a lot of sled envy and a lot of sled shame at the same time. My kids, not so much. They were, they were having a grand old time on their lids. So that's good. Kids are very simple, which is nice. Uh, okay, number one, this to me is a pretty big deal. Reading from the National Review, a column by Andrew McCarthy, it says, a few days ago, the New York Times quietly updated its report published over a month earlier, asserting that Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick had been killed by being struck with a fire extinguisher during the January 6th riot. According to the update, this is the New York Times, this is their update, new information has emerged regarding the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick that questions the initial cause of death provided by officials close to the Capitol Police. Um, As I detailed in a column last week, McCarthy says, what the Times calls new information actually began emerging the same day the paper filed its January 8th report. And then the column goes on to say that there were reports, there were reports as early as January 8th, so that is less than two days afterwards, saying that Sicknick may have died of a stroke. And as no evidence has emerged for any other theory, the stroke idea seems extremely credible at this point, which means that his death didn't necessarily have any connection to the riot whatsoever. In fact, it, it seems to me, again, because there's, there's, no, ev- there's no other evidence for anything. We, we have the reports initially saying it, it was a stroke. Uh, but, but that hasn't been confirmed yet, as far as I'm aware. And we were, we were never told anything officially about the medical exam or the, the autopsy report. Um, but if he was beat to death, bludgeoned to death, at this point, you would expect there to be some kind of evidence for it, some sort of arrest that, that had been made. And, and that hasn't happened. So this seems very credible that it was a stroke. Was it a stroke somehow connected to the riot? Did the riot trigger something? Did he... I mean, it's possible. It's also very possible that it's a coincidence that it, there, hap- there was a riot and then and he happened to suffer this medical emergency after the fact. But you have to, you have to ask yourself, um, during the whole course of the BLM riots over the, over the summer, hundreds of cities, uh, was there was there ever during all of that? Did any police officer, in you know, after a riot had occurred, maybe at at his home or or back um, at the station, suffer a medical emergency and die, a stroke, a heart attack, something like that? Did that happen? Well, we don't know. I mean, it could have easily happened. The point is, it would not have been reported. It wouldn't have made the news, but it easily could have happened. Was there? There was rioting in Portland for months. During the whole course of all that rioting in Portland, did any police officer die of anything? Seems very likely. I don't know. It seems likely. But it wouldn't be reported. That's the difference. And if the media did report it, they certainly wouldn't assume that there's a connection and report it as a connection. If a Portland police officer went home and Eight hours after he was uh, on duty dealing with a riot, he, he died of a stroke. The media would not report it as connected to the riot. And we all know that. But what we've seen here, the way that um, the Democrat Party has exploited this man's death and lied about it. Because let's be real about this. This fire extinguisher story, this, this was a lie. It was a fabrication. I don't know who originally fabricated it, but it was a fabrication. Because it it just didn't happen. It's not like something similar happened and it was misinterpreted. It doesn't. It's nothing like that happened to Officer Brian Sicknick. So uh, this appears to be a total fabrication, total lie. We we don't really know where it originated. I don't think it originated with the New York Times. Maybe it did, but we don't know. 
But what they've done here by exploiting this man's death and lying about it is is one of the most craven things we've seen from the Democrat Party. Uh, and, and, And I realize what a statement that is. But I want to emphasize how despicable this really has been. And it only shows, again, why you, you know, I don't know how many times we have to see this before people, before it really sinks in with all of us. You cannot take the mainstream media narrative at face value ever. Okay, you all, anytime there's a report about anything, especially if it's something that has political significance, the Democrat Party is using uh, to, you know, push some sort of agenda of theirs. Anytime that happens, whatever the report is, you have to be skeptical. And there were signs early on, like the way that this was reported from the very beginning, because it, it, you know, we're also at a disadvantage. None of us were there. We, if, and if we don't have our own sources and people on the ground telling us, then how are we supposed to know what happened? We have to, you know, where are we supposed to get our information? And that's part of the problem. But there were signs early on to be skeptical of this, the way it was reported. Yeah, the media was saying that maybe there was a fire extinguisher. We were hearing something about maybe he was hit over the head or whatever. But if you looked at the way it was reported, it was framed in kind of, it was framed in an oddly passive sort of way where they were telling us that Officer Sicknick was engaging with rioters and then, and then, you know, and suffered an injury and then later died. And it was just kind of, it wasn't exactly being reported that he had been beat to death right there during the riot. There was this little bit of, there was, there, there was clear uncertainty, enough to make you stop and go, wait, what a second, what, what exactly happened here? Never take the mainstream media narrative at face value. Always be skeptical. Um, you can't go wrong. Right? There's, no, there's no real disadvantage to just being skeptical doesn't mean you automatically disbelieve every single thing you're told by the mainstream media, but always skeptical, especially when there's political significance. Okay, from the Daily Wire, it says, in a never-before-seen 1992 home video, Dylan Farrow, the adopted daughter of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, is heard as a seven-year-old telling her mother that Allen, quote, touched her private parts, telling her, um, this Allen told her, allegedly, do not move, I have to do this. The young girl then poignantly poignantly tells her mother, I didn't want him to do it, Mama. I didn't like it. The video is featured in a new four-part HBO documentary series about the Oscar-winning director titled Alan vs. Pharaoh that premieres Sunday on HBO. The series will feature recordings that Mia secretly made of her phone conversations with Alan, including one in which she tells him that Dylan is not all right after the alleged incident. Uh, Mia Farrow and Alan, who had been together since 1979, split after she found out that he was having an affair with her adopted daughter, Sunyu Previn. At the time, Alan was 55 and Sunyu Previn was uh, 21. And then it goes into, if you want to watch this documentary, it goes into great detail about Woody Allen. I, you know, it's pretty clear to me. Of course, we've got to attach allegedly to all these claims and everything. And um, Regardless, though, I mean, this is a guy 55 years old, marries his girlfriend's adopted daughter, who's 34 years younger than him. That, that's enough right there to know this guy is a degenerate, creepy freak. Al- already from that. And then you add in these claims, these uh, the allegations, I personally find them quite credible, given what we know about Woody Allen. But think about all the Hollywood A-listers that have worked with this guy. I mean, almost everyone in Hollywood has. 
Almost all the big names have at some point worked on a Woody Allen project. And yet these people will still lecture us. And even while the me, even, even once Me Too happened and, and, and during the, the, the Me Too hysteria, Woody Allen was still putting movies out. And a lot of the Me Too champions were still starring in them. Number three, Claudia Conway, um, the daughter of Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, auditioned on American Idol a couple nights ago. Now, American Idol came in for some criticism um, by people calling this exploitative and gross to bring this girl in as fodder for tabloids to bring attention to the show, exploiting her troubled situation. And and I guess um, the question of whether it's exploitative to have Claudia Conway on American Idol, it certainly seems exploitative to me. But it really depends on, on whether Claudia Conway is actually a burgeoning pop star. I mean, if, if she really is massively talented as a singer, then maybe you can't blame them for, for bringing her on if she's actually that good. But if she's not, then you have to ask why she made the show at all. And I know that they do bring on some bad singers on purpose so that everyone can laugh at them. But then you have to ask, why did they pick her? You see, th- that would seem especially exploitative. If she's not a very good singer... Um, and she wants to be an American Idol, and she's only famous because of this deeply troubled, disordered family dysfunction that she's a part of, and and you bring her on the show, well, that's that's extremely exploitative, isn't it? So that's what it really comes down to for me. Is she a good singer or not? And this is not to make fun of her or anything, but that's I I think that's how you can tell if uh, if this is blatant exploitation or not. And so let's... uh, she, she did the audition a couple nights ago, and let's let's take a listen. You sound like a song. My God, this reminds me of when we were young. Let me photograph you in this lighting case. It is the last time that we might be exactly like we Um, yes, it was exploitation. It, it was, it was exploitation. And I don't mean this, this, this is not about mocking this girl who I feel bad for. This, she didn't ask to be a part of this. And, um, well, she may have asked to be a part of it. She asked to be a part of, of American Idol and, and she has been on social media bringing attention to herself, but she's a kid. You know, she, we, the kids don't know any better. Um, what she didn't ask for is to be in this deeply dysfunctional family situation with a mother and father who apparently seem to hate each other and are pretty public about it. Um, or at least, at least I would say it, it, it seems that the, the father hates the mother and is pretty public about that. Um, but in any case, it, yeah, this is, Claudia Conway is not going to be a pop star. I think we could tell from that. She's a better singer. She's a fine singer. She's a better singer than I am. Uh, she's got a better shot at pop stardom than I do, but even so, she's not going to be a pop star. And they brought her on anyway. And so, yes, C- confirmed exploitation. Number four, uh, here's some bad news from Jen Pisaki. Listen. I think one point the Europeans would like to better understand it, what he means with foreign policy for the middle class. Does mm-hmm. it mean to uphold Donald Trump's tariffs like 
in the case of aluminum from the UAE, this, the Biden administration, used the same reasoning as the Trump administration. I can assure you that the president, this president does not have, is not looking to the last presidency as the model for his foreign policy moving forward. Uh, president Biden has been working in the global arena for decades. Uh, and what he means by foreign policy for the middle class is uh, ensuring that our team working on economic issues, our team working on national security issues, uh, our teams thinking about how policies impact the American people are talking and that we make decisions and make policies through that prism. Uh, we are certainly reviewing uh, a range of tariffs that have been put in place by the past administration. I don't have any updates on that for you. But what the president is speaking to is the importance of uh, contemplating, integrating our domestic and national security teams and the policymaking and the process that uh, they go through. And his view that we are stronger globally if we take care of our house here at home. Uh, so that is part of his objective as well. Well, that, that is bad news. Trump is not a model for their foreign policy. Why not? Why? I, I think if he's a model for anything, it's actually foreign policy. But I, I think there are a lot of aspects of Donald Trump that you wouldn't want to model yourself after or your presidential administration after. But um, foreign policy, absolutely. We, we went through four years without a new war. Peace deals in the Middle East. <laughs> That's pretty damn successful. He, one, one thing I think you can't deny is that he is the most successful foreign policy president that we've had in generations. Um, and it's, it's a sad statement though, right? Because the, the main thing that makes him such a great foreign policy president and makes him so successful is simply that he didn't start any wars. And so it's unfortunate that the bar is that low, that all you have to do as a president is not start a disastrous war that uh, claims thousands of lives and, and billions or trillions of dollars. Like, that's all you have to do is not start a war. But that's where we are. And, uh, and, he, and he did get over that bar. He cleared that bar quite easily. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. So yes, I, I would like to see. I would like to see the Trump foreign policy emulated. But we won't. Now we're going to go back to the more traditional uh, foreign policy, which means droning random villages overseas, starting wars, trying to spread democracy to people who have no interest in democracy whatsoever. Uh, that's what we're going to get from, from Joe Biden. And also another, another thing from uh, Jen Psaki I want to play for you. More, more bad news, I'm afraid. She was asked by someone on Twitter how she plans to help small businesses. Does, uh, or, or rather, how does Biden plan to, to, to help small businesses? Does the administration have a plan in place? What are they going to do for all these small businesses that have been devastated by the lockdowns? And here is her answer. What is President Biden doing for my small business? First and foremost, he nominated a woman to lead the Small Business Administration who formerly worked there. Second thing is he signed an executive order to make it easier for uh, minority-owned small businesses to get access to the funding uh, that they need. And third is that uh, in the American Rescue Plan, there's currently about $60 billion uh, to help a range of small, small businesses uh, get access to additional funds. So did you get that? The first two things, number one and two. First thing, he nominated a woman, and also he's going to help minority businesses. Great. Well, so, what, so you're a white male business owner? Guess you're out of luck. All business owners are really out of luck when it comes down to it. This, this is how, because think about it, this was not um, an off-the-cuff answer that Jen Psaki gave at a press conference. 
this was this was something that they shot ahead of time and put a little production behind and then released. So they, they this this is how they presented it on purpose, which shows how incredibly out of touch the left is. Democrat politicians are. That they actually thought the average small business owner would hear that answer and be happy with it. They they really thought that the average small business owner who is watching their life's work fall apart in front of them will take solace in the fact that, uh, well, at least a woman was nominated to lead the Small Business Administration. That's what they think. They, 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 they don't understand how a, a normal person's brain operates. That is how it operates in a rational, logical kind of way. And the rational, logical conclusion is that I don't give a damn if you get what, what gender is leading what administration or what agency in government. What do I care about that? These policies have destroyed my life and my business. That's what I care about. Doesn't make it any better because there, there are more women in the administration now. They do not understand that. They don't understand it. They don't have, they don't have brains that work. That, they don't have normally functioning brains, and that's the problem. Number five, from the Hill, it says, Bill Gates recently said that he believes rich nations would help the global fight against climate change by consuming only plant-based meat products instead of beef. In a recent interview with Technology Review, Gates discussed his new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and emphasized the benefits rich nations could produce by moving to 100% synthetic beef. He says, I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef. Uh, You can get used to taste difference, and the claim is they're going to make it taste even better over time. Yeah, no thanks, Bill. Uh, I, don't th- I don't think I'll be doing that. I don't think I'll ever be doing that. I'm going to stick with the regular beef. And also, I don't, I, I don't really give a damn about your opinion about anything. We're hearing, we're hearing a lot from Bill Gates these last few months. Why should? But no one ever stops to explain why we should actually care what he thinks about anything. I understand that he's rich and he was successful with his business. Good for him. Why should I care what he thinks about what I eat? Why should I care what he thinks about the virus mitigation strategies? Why should I care what he thinks about the climate? That's the part that's always left out. When Bill Gates is brought in for an interview or Bill Gates sits down for a written interview or they write another article about what Bill Gates thinks, nobody ever stops and says, oh, by the way, here's why you should care what this guy says. Until they explain it, I'm going to continue not caring. Unless they can give me some really good reason why I should. And, I, you know, and I, as far as Bill Gates' own diet, I have no idea. He might be a vegetarian himself. But I would not be surprised at all if that guy's eating, you know, six hamburgers a day while telling the rest of us that we're going to have to move to the plant-based stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll get used to the taste. You'll get used to the taste. I won't. I'm not, I'm not worried about that because I'm Bill Gates. But, but you, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. What do you need good taste for? Why do you need good food? You don't need that. Just another basic joy, basic pleasure in life that you don't need. I mean, I'll have all the joys and pleasures for myself, but you don't need it. That's the attitude. Shut up, Bill. Shut up. That's my, that would be my response. Let's go to uh, reading the comments now. Some of the comments under the show on YouTube from yesterday. And if, if you want me to read your comment, all you have to do is, uh, is leave one. And that's, that's a good, that's a good, at least, at least put you in the running. You can't win if you don't play, as they say. 
This is from Walt G. He says, a little thought experiment. An alien civilization has the technology to, de to, to detect life on Earth, the ability to travel light years using incredibly advanced technology. They overcome all of these obstacles that we still can't fathom. They achieve these things, get here, and crash. Yeah, I do, I do think about that when we hear about the you know, documents uh, outlining all of the UFO material that the, the Pentagon has tested. And again, of course, UFO doesn't, when, 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 the, when the Pentagon talks about UFO, or uh, I guess now the word they use is UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon, uh, they're not saying that it's a space alien. They're, they're simply saying they can't identify, they don't know what it is. And we talked about yesterday the, the uh, hundreds of, of pages of documents that they released, Freedom of Information Act request, um, talking about the unidentified flying objects they recovered and tested. And apparently, allegedly, some of this stuff has material that uh, functions in a way that is unknown to, uh, to mankind, as far as we know. Metal that can be bent, uh, you know, is basically indestructible, but it can be bent in all these different shapes, and then and then will snap back into its original shape, that kind of thing. And yeah, I love these stories. Uh, I do find them very interesting. I do think we should at least entertain the idea that, that maybe they are extraterrestrial in origin. But then I also think, man, all of these super advanced civilizations coming here, and then they crash. That's... There's something about that. There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect. I don't know. Aaron Peacock says, grown men that take baths also sit down when they pee. I agree, Aaron. Um, I absolutely agree. I'm very anti-bath. Matthew uh, Milskow says, Matt, I am single right now, and I can tell you that it's awful trying to find someone. I thought being able to go to college would be my chance to meet someone, but instead I get to spend my time behind a computer screen. Yeah, I don't, I don't envy you for that at all. Um, and I feel, I, I do, I feel terrible for, for people that are in this situation, especially, you know, maybe like you, you're supposed to have your first year at college, looking forward to meeting people, and now you're just sitting behind a computer screen. Um, but it kind of, it, it, it kind of relates back to the meat thing from Bill Gates, where he says, yeah, yeah, hamburgers and meat taste good. It's a little joy that 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 that, uh, that you have in your life, but you don't need that. We could take that. We could take another little joy away from you. And the people that have engineered the lockdowns and pushed them and keep them in place, they have the same attitude about little little joys, little human things like going out and meeting people. They say you don't really need that. You can survive in your house. Until you can't anymore, but until then, you can survive. You'll have all the food. Food doesn't even need to taste good. See, the elites, as far as they're concerned, if they simply keep you alive, then they've done their job. As long as you're still alive, then you have nothing to complain about. While they, again, enjoy all of the pleasures and everything that life has to offer. They also have not been staying home, these people. Bill Gates has been flying all over the place doing interviews, you know, they get, to, they get, they, they're, they're still going to work. They're having press conferences. In fact, they're more active than they've ever been, but you don't need that. Uh, little things like companionship, who needs that? Well, in fact, everyone does. People need that. Human beings need companionship. It is, that is an actual human need. Dano says, hey, Matt, you canceling your own fans slash followers gives me anxiety. Please don't cancel me. Losing Trump and losing my ability to watch your show will destroy my life. 
Well, Dano, you know, when you beg to be canceled, that's only a recipe for getting canceled and banned from the show. So you're gone. But thanks anyway for listening and commenting for your final time. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions because I think that uh, if there's something that you actually intend to do, then you're not going to save it for some moment. Uh, well, I'm going to start doing it on the New Year. No, if you want to do something, if you want to improve your life, you could start right now. And so we don't need to call this a New Year's resolution. How about a right now resolution? One of them is uh, to, to learn, to, to grow your, um, your knowledge, to become a more well-rounded person. This is a process we should always be, um, be you know, involved in. Because learning is not something that you simply do at school. It's something you should be doing every single day. And that's why I am a big fan of Great Courses, have been for a long time, and I really love their newest offer, which is the Great Courses Plus. With the Great Courses Plus, you have unlimited access to thousands of video and audio lectures on hundreds of fascinating topics. Um, some of the topics, I, I've, I've, list, I've taken Great Courses um, classes on you know, history, uh, biblical history, American history, ancient history, um, science, psychology, pretty much anything you could, you could possibly ask. Whatever the subject is that, you, that you're interested in or you think you might be interested in, they've probably got a course on it. Plus, with the Great Courses Plus app, you're uh, free to watch, listen, and learn on any device at any time. It's very easy to do, no matter where you are in the world. The courses are taught by the best professors and top experts in their fields. And it's um, all, all the materials extensively vetted and researched. So this is not like going on Wikipedia to learn something. This is really learning it. I'm so glad I found a more productive way to spend my time. And I want you to do the same with the Great Courses Plus. Get started with a free month of unlimited access. Just visit my special URL. Here it is, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Walsh. That's a whole month to learn anything you want for free. So sign up now. I really, I can't urge you enough to do it. You got to check it out. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Walsh. And one other thing uh, to mention here, as I'm sure you know, actress Gina Carano, Carano, that is, has been uh, making her way through the news cycle recently. She was canceled for, for being a conservative. That's the real reason. They, they come up with other excuses for it, but the real, the, her real offense is that she's a, a, a conservative actress, very successful. She was on the hit Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian. Now she's been dropped because of, um, because of the cancel culture mob. Well, we at The Daily Wire, we've been talking about fighting back, not, not, and not always playing defense, but playing offense too and fighting back. And that's why we just announced a movie deal with Gina. That's correct. She'll be developing, producing, and starring in an upcoming film that will be released exclusively to Daily Wire members. We've all said it. Conservatives need to do more than complain and critique. We need to actually stop running away from the culture and start creating culture ourselves. And that's what we're doing. And we're going up against Disney+. Plus. They've got $8 billion to spend. We have you. That's, that's our secret weapon. So join us today in the fight to take back our culture. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code GINA. That's G-I-N-A to get 25% off your membership today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. It's really impossible to remember all of the fake and frivolous controversies that the internet has given us. That's part of the fake and frivolous package, I suppose. They're also forgettable. But one such controversy has uh, stood out and will be remembered, at least by me. That's the controversy surrounding the man who is known now as Bean Dad. Now, some background. John Roderick is a musician, podcast host who became infamous on Twitter last month after he tweeted out a thread detailing his daughter's experience with a can opener. Now, in a long, very unnecessarily long story, he explained that his daughter wanted to open a can of beans 
But rather than do it for her, he, he, uh, had, he had her figure it out for herself as a kind of teaching opportunity. And he says it took her hours, hours of trying to open the can before she finally did it. And he posted this as sort of a, a congratulations to himself uh, for being a good dad. But the world and Twitter didn't see it that way. The thread went viral. People were outraged. They accused him of abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Uh, they said that he was starving his daughter. They said that he's a horrible person, et cetera, and so forth. Then they started digging up his old tweets, of course. And next thing you know, he's uh, not only a bad father, abusive, but racist too. So he's racist and abusive. Uh, all of this stuff happened. And uh, eventually he apologized and deactivated his account, but it was too late. Meanwhile, back in Realityville, it's obvious that the story was an exaggeration. The girl was not working on a can of beans for hours. Give me a break. And even if she was, it's not abuse. Presumably, she, she's not malnourished. He is feeding her. He never said that her continued access to food was predicated on her ability to get the can open. He didn't say that. So even if he was being a jerk about the can, whatever. Calling that abuse is insane. And look, I, I, I have never... Um, been in a situation where my kids were trying to open a can for six hours, so I, I've never done that. But all of us as parents, we have moments where our kids ask us to do something, and uh, and we could do it for them. It would be very easy for us to do, but for whatever reason, we just don't feel like doing it. And so we say, no, look, you figure that out for yourself. I'm not doing it. So all parents have moments like that. And it's good to have moments like that. It's good for the for the kid to have to figure something out. Um, six hours opening a can is a little bit excessive, but even so. So there was no abuse here. Uh, and being dad's real crime, if he committed one, was in being a tool who tries to, you know, brag about his own excellent parenting on the internet or what he thinks is excellent parenting. And if, if that's the crime, then that's the one he committed, but that doesn't make him a child abuser, right? Or, or so I thought. An update on this story from Reason, written by Lenore Skenazy, it says, Roderick recently divulged a new wrinkle in the story, which makes it clear that it was not just an online kerfuffle. For his afternoon of bean withholding, Roderick actually earned a visit from the Child Protective Services. In Roderick on the Line, his weekly podcast with Merlin Mann, Roderick said, A dozen people reported me to CPS, and they were obligated to come interview my family and interrogate my daughter. Thankfully, the CPS visit went well. They were wonderful, said Roderick, and they were just doing their jobs. Apparently, one investigator uh, told Roderick's daughter for about an hour, or rather um, spoke to Roderick's daughter for about an hour privately, asking questions like, what do you like about your dad? And what do you not like about your dad? Roderick's daughter told him about this afterward. Turns out she doesn't like the fact that he gets tired of playing Legos faster than, he do, than she does. Okay, so that's, that's a report from Reason. Child Protective Services. Because he made his daughter open a can of beans on her own. This is the kind of thing that keeps parents up at night, right? This, this right here. Not because we've ha we have similar family drama involving cans of beans, and not because we're abusive, but because CPS can be summoned to our homes very easily and for the most trivial of reasons. And once they show up, your parental rights are on the line. Of course, they're not suspended. Now, so CPS does not have the right to enter your home without permission or to speak to your, your child without permission. And that's something that parents, I think a lot of parents don't realize and um, CPS, I think, counts on parents not realizing that. And they show up and knock on the door and they say, can we come in? Can we talk to your kid? And parents, because they are scared and, and, and they feel like their back's against the wall now, they'll say, sure, come in and 
You don't have to do that. And it's a mistake to let CPS in in that situation. Because think about it. They're, according to um, John Roderick, they're sitting down, they're talking to her, his daughter for an hour, saying things like, what do you... Yeah, th- these are fishing, leading kinds of questions. What do you not like about your dad? I mean, who, who knows what kind of thing a kid will say in response to that? Kids are imaginative. Kids, they don't really understand what the consequences are. They don't really know what's going on. A kid could be, you know, you could, the CPS could come in at a moment when the child is angry at the parent, not because they're being abused, but because kids get angry about, you know, not being allowed to watch TV when they want to or something. And who knows what they'll say. So the minute you say, sure, sit down and talk to my kid for an hour, that could go anywhere. I mean, that could be the last time you see your kid for a long time, depending on how that goes. Um, but even if you don't let the CPS in, they can, they can go and uh, they're not going to leave you alone after that. They can go get a court order. They can continue harassing if they choose. Once CPS is in your life, it can be very difficult to get them out. And just the simple fact that they showed up at your door carries a stigma that may never go away. Even if, again, you're totally innocent. As the article in Reason lays out, the system is broken. Anyone can report abuse. They can do it anonymously. They can do it as many times as they want. And all reports are investigated, no matter how obviously frivolous they are. Um, this, was, um, this was a report based on a publicly available internet post. Okay, the people calling CPS on Bean Dad, they were doing it based on a tweet. There is no good reason for the government to respond to that at all. It, if we allowed just a little bit of judgment and discretion, then CPS could have looked at the report, looked at the tweet in question, and said, never mind, this is absurd. Oh, that's what you're calling about? That? What? No, we're not going to go knock on the guy's door. But instead, everything these days, especially in government, operates according to the zero-tolerance policy, the zero-tolerance sort of philosophy. And what that means is that all situations will be treated exactly the same. No discernment, no discretion, no human judgment will enter the equation at all. We are, we are to act as robots, um, according to the programming. The Reason article references a report in the New York Daily News that's uh, very relevant here. It says, quote, Over the past 40 years, more and more people have been calling the child abuse hotlines, not because there's so much child abuse going on, but because they've been conditioned to report almost anything, a kid with a scrape, a kid walking the dog, as possible abuse or neglect. Better safe than sorry. But how safe? How sorry? According to one estimate, more than half of all African-American children, 53%, will be visited by Child Protective Services at some point in their childhood. That compared to 37% of all children, which is already outrageous. Now, 37% of all children sounds enormously high. Um, I, I, I almost have to doubt that it could pot 37%. Maybe that is as bad as it's gotten. All told, it says 7.8 million kids get reported to Child Protective Services each year. And that is literally 7 million kids too many. The mind-bogglingly vast majority of calls turn out to, be, to not be cases of abuse or neglect at all. While tragically, child abuse and neglect deaths do occur... These cases represent two out of every 100,000 hotline calls. Two out of 100,000. And as the number of calls has gone up in the last few two decades, the number of deaths has not gone down. That's right. Abuse deaths increased, possibly because caseworkers are stretched so thin. The important thing to remember here 
is that all of these millions of frivolous child abuse reports and investigations are not victimless. It's not like nobody is hurt by just checking on the claim, right? Better safe than sorry. No, that's, that's not always the case. When it's a frivolous child abuse uh, claim or, or report, and then this innocent parent ends up in the crosshairs of CPS and their parental rights are on the line, and they could possibly lose their parental rights and lose their children, even though they didn't do anything wrong. That is not better safe than sorry. Lots of families are hurt, destroyed, ripped apart. Once the parents become officially suspected child abusers, uh, that's what happens. The system is indeed broken. Fixing it will be complicated work, but one thing that's needed in order to fix it is a return to situational judgment, discretion, not treating everything the same as everything else. Not all child abuse reports are made, are, are, are created equal. They're not all the same. Okay, a kid goes to school and he's got, you know, and he's got very suspicious looking bruises or he looks to be malnourished or something like that. That You know, that's clearly, you, you, you call CPS for that. But someone sends, writes a tweet about their kid opening a can of beans or you see an eight-year-old that was allowed to go down to the playground, you know, 100 yards from the house by himself, walk the dog down the street. He's got a scrape on his knee. No, those are not the same. So this is one thing, situational judgment, discretion, um, letting human beings discern and make judgments based on, based on that. Not all child abuse reports are created equal. The Bean Dad case shows that, as so many other cases show that as well. And that's why the people who reported Bean Dad are officially canceled. And that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Stay safe out there. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, Texas freezes as the power grid buckles and the Washington Post worries that conservatives are complaining too much about cancel culture. So you're canceled. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show. Tune in. Mm-hmm.